welcome to True Alignment. Good morning. Welcome to True Alignment. I'm Edgar Papke. And I'm Ken Sagendorf. We're live this morning in the Innovation Incubator in the Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. Yes, we are. I went hiking this weekend, cleaned out my lungs a little bit. You cleaned out your lungs? Yeah, so I could get that all in in one breath. That was my... Oh, wow. <laughs> and where, where did you go hiking? Uh, Golden Gate Canyon State Park. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Uh, the thing that I'm uh, always surprised at is how uh, how you can do some elevation gain. You know, you head down those trails and you don't quite realize how much of a uphill or up up the mountain kind of a of a of a uh, undertaking that is. Yeah, she said, uh, you know, you're only going to gain like 700 feet. I think it was all at once, and, and you're starting steep. at like 10,000 feet already, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love it when uh, clients come out to visit, and uh, one of my favorite things to do is to spend a day up in the mountains with them, whether it be at typically the national park, because yeah. you know, that the views and Absolutely. just being right there on the continental divide is just I, it's breathtaking. Yeah, we're very fortunate to have Rocky Mountain National Park so yeah. close, and it always makes for just these wonderful ex- expanse of conversations. And uh, there's just and there's so much great research on that of late. Um, around creative thinking um how we think out you know how we think in the box because we're in boxes all the time in the buildings in the offices and and the rooms that we're in and uh the different uh, layers and dimensions that the that the outdoors provides us uh, and leads to greater levels of creativity um both in terms of quality of ideas as well as number of ideas it's all the research you know leaning in that direction uh reminding us that there is just wonderful opportunities to work in different ways and engage people differently than we typically do or yeah. that we that we think about. You know, Edgar, that's so interesting because I'm, I'm hearing from people of late the, the task-related nature of their work, right, is that mm-hmm. they're focused on doing the things. There's so much out written right now around this idea of how do you change this up, how do you get new inputs, Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like a little bit of work. Some people tell me, I mean, we're, listen, we're in the incubator, which is an all glass room, which is meant. So if somebody walks by, it might spark a new thought. Not everybody likes to be in this room because it is a little bit of a fishbowl. Um, but what you mentioned about being in the park and seeing this expanse and, you know, having a little bit of wonder that opens the doors, um, for new kinds of inputs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's really, uh, that's a fantastic way of thinking. There's so much coming out right now too about creative thinking all of a sudden is making a kind of uh, resurgence. It it comes forward every so often, but there's there's a real resurgence in the business literature right now. I think uh, Harvard Business Review just had an article on create the power of creative thinking at work. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting topic when you, you know, creative thinking, what does that mean? <laughs> As far as I can tell, we're always creatively thinking as human beings. Um, that's our going back to the idea of, of how it is that we innovate. And then how it is that we engage. And the more that we allow for space for creativity, the more the imagination uh, plays a role. And the greater the imagination playing a role, the greater the level of creativity. Um, and that's, I think, oh, so often, I, I agree with you, so often we get so task-oriented that we forget to step back from it and see it in a different light and a different way and put ourselves in a different situation, you know, day in and day out. I think that's part of a, as well, I think part of what happened during the pandemic is I think that you saw a lot of people trying to find different creative paths and guitar sales went up, musical (laughs) instruments. I mean, there's just so much evidence that as people sat more and more in their, in their boxes and their, in their spaces that there was just, just innate human desire to create and to you know expand, and um, yeah, well, I'll tell you that, that that's a heck of a challenge. Do you think, Edgar, that the pandemic and and, and a collection of other factors that are just intersecting all at once? Do you think that's dro- driven some individualism? Um, you know, the feeling of of being alone. I mean, this remote workspace where some people are, you know, working by themselves all the time. I, you know, we're watching. In the education space, we're watching students come and they have a hard time interacting with one another in in meaningful ways. 
I mean, they certainly don't want to give each other any any feedback or state that intention. I mean, you and I, we talk about this setting the intention and how difficult that is in human relationships. Yeah, it, and to I think first and foremost to be your point's a really good one and be conscious of it. So, how conscious of we uh, of our intention toward relationships and what we want them to look like? Let alone, I think you're right. I think there's that certain level of individualism that that just uh, will emerge in, in different contexts. And I find it really interesting in two forms, uh, and it's kind of a, a spectrum for me in my uh, in my experience working with people. One is that um, there's a withdrawal tendency that can show up and it furthers that withdrawal. And that, of course, can also then spur a sense of loneliness. It can be, on the one hand, while I feel very independent, uh, and on the other hand, you know, there's a loneliness piece. So I think that's important to recognize. And then the, uh, the other is that um, I think it offered for a lot of people to look at themselves and engage in activities around increasing awareness, increasing their capacity to create, to be creative. And so I think there's there's a variety of different ways that people manage that. I think it's important to recognize that, that you know, it's, it's so contextual and it's, it can show up in a lot of different ways. Uh, I do know that a lot of the conversations that I've had with people now you know, coming out of the pandemic, though, we don't know what the next couple of years is, is going to look like. Uh, and the science tells us that we're at risk in, yeah. in mutations. And so it's kind of a, uh, it, it's interesting to see how people are coming back into it and what their experiences of reconnection and finding themselves back in, in groups and in the workplace and how some are really thriving and others are resisting it. Yeah. Uh, a couple things to add to that. Edgar is uh, a strain of my, uh, research and scholarship is around around the search for that point when somebody moves from being an individual thinker to an organizational thinker, we call it. Okay. Like how does somebody in their role all of a sudden say the organization needs X? And that's, that's a source of some of that uh, potential creative energy. And, and as you're talking, it makes me it makes me wonder, I need to go look at the belonging research. There's lots of stuff in the diversity space about what creates the conditions for belonging. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, um, when we were uh, young and adolescent in that field, it used to be what you saw was what created belonging, right? I mean, so in diversity space, we talked about demographic diversity. So you needed to see more women in the workplace. You needed to see more people of color in the workplace, um, as, as we mature in that, in that study, we realize that it's not just about what you see. That's a, that's a component. But it's actually about the ways in which you're included. Um, the ways in which you're brought into this conversation. And as, as you were talking, it, um, I had to write myself some notes because I need to explore that intersection between the belonging research and this idea of What's the trigger that makes somebody become an organizational thinker? Yeah, so a, a couple of things come to mind around that, which is right at the core of the work that we do, and that is to understand what motivates someone to that, right? So someone may be invoke, it may, it may evoke um, that, you know, that sense of inclusion. And so I want to be included and want to be a part of just for that uh, social context. And then... I was having a conversation with someone, um, and I'll just mention Apple because that's what the conversation was about, was uh, that engagement has a lot to do with how people are challenged and how people are competing within the hierarchy. That they're, that they're, that's their context, is that hierarchy, and they have to demonstrate and prove themselves. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a, it's another sense of belonging because when we talk about culture, we get that sense of, and what is the essence of belonging? And how is that defined and what is uh, the emotional and motivational element that exists in that context? So that's a really interesting point, Edgar. I mean, I, and if I'm thinking in pictures, you know, part of when you say that, that competitiveness of, of, of a culture and of the workplace culture drives some of that belonging and some of that creative thinking, um, 
you know, there's a couple of things coming out of the pandemic. Also, when we dropped our freshmen off at Gonzaga, um, I was actually quite impressed because some of the administrators had a session during orientation with the parents about there are ways that you can see your, your child's grades, but they're an adult. So you have to ask them. They're not yours. doesn't matter who pays the bills. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they warned us about was um, – we know they're likely to perform less well than they performed during the pandemic. And, and we, and on the news this morning, locally, we're talking about the test scores across the state are very, um, right, right. Uh, very much lower. I mean, you're talking 10, 12% on some of these scores and, you know, it'd be interesting to watch how this goes. But as you mentioned, that competitive nature of, of the workplace can drive some, some belonging and creative thinking. You know, we see so many workplaces too, where, there's a there's a definitive ceiling where leaders don't necessarily want folks to compete in ways that they can move. And ways that they can move means what? Uh, you know, ways that they might find progression in their career, uh-huh. up, upward mobility, right? Because you, you mentioned that hierarchy. Hierarchy implies that there's a higher and lower yeah. Yep. And that's, uh, I mean, that's part of our innate being, uh, that yeah. we, we, we always look for some either form of control or somebody to have control. And we, we lean towards trying to find people that are going to, um, pr- provide us with definitions of what success looks like and what it is that we need to you know strive for. I think that's an interesting part of it because so much of, um, I think, coming out of the pandemic and uh, I think a part of it is a redefinition or an ongoing exploration of what the definitions of success are. Yeah. Because it's, it, it's, it has shifted and the ground beneath us has shifted. And so the definitions of success and competition and, and, uh, and teamwork have changed. Yeah. Well, and this is where, you know, some of my question comes from about how individualistic, um, things are in, in many organizations because yeah. some people during the pandemic, as you mentioned and alluded to earlier, have started to define sec- success for themselves that may or may not be success for the organization. Um, yeah. And that's one of the things that also uh, I think leaders struggle with and teams struggle with. I one of the fastest um, ways that a team breaks down is when it's members perceive that somebody's looking out for themselves and not in the best, and not in, out of alignment with what's in the best or perceived best interest of the team. Uh, I'm going to do a very, very poor job of bringing in a movie reference here. Um, and I, I can see the look in your eye. <laughs> and I've, you know, I, I've mentioned to you that I, I never pre-think about what the movie references are going to be. Though, though um, James says that you may want to start doing that more often. <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> it's probably true. Um, we've seen some good ones recently, and 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 you know, I think there's probably. Um, we watched Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. I, I don't know if you've, if you've seen that movie. The title alone has me wondering. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, listen, my wife and my movie tastes are not similar. So there's always some compromise of what we're going to watch if we sit down together. Um, but Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris is a story about a, a, a woman who had lost her husband, and, and she's, uh, she's a maid, and she takes care of a family. Um, but her biggest... Her biggest dream is to buy herself a dress. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she goes to London to the house of Dior. And she's not really welcome because she's out of place, right? She's obviously uh, in a different socioeconomic class than the people that are in the house of Dior. And, and they're very rude. And, and she kind of breaks in and warms their heart. But she breaks in by relating to the people that are working there. Yes. And, and really seeing them. And it's actually a really um, kind of uh, fantastic story of somebody trying to find what they want and the ability to see what others want and, and make those connections. Um, but that's not even the movie that I was thinking about. I, I will, because you, you talked about this kind of the breakdown of teams and individuals. And so... I don't pre-think about the movie, but this morning I was kind of cataloging, cataloging movies that might be 
that might be good to bring up because I uh, always feel a little pressure that I have to see a new movie so that I can bring it into this conversation. <laughs> but um, it does help to be have a little, you know, a library, a bigger library, and something that's current. Yeah, need a movie on The Godfather for sure. So this one's not current. So I'm going to tell you flat out. Oh. But it's a movie that gives me a belly laugh every time I watch it. And, and the movie is Along Came Polly. Um, ben Stiller, Jennifer Aniston, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And in that movie, Philip Seymour Hoffman is a child actor whose career never moved beyond child. being that child <laughs> actor. And now, like, I mean, he is the brat of all brats. Right. I mean, he really right. has this ego about him and, and, you know, they are doing like a, a community production of, of Jesus Christ superstar. And he tries to play all the roles because he doesn't believe he should be in a secondary role. <laughs> right. And, and he gets in a fight and, you know, I bring that up because oftentimes the ability to see yourself in the context is really difficult for us all. Right. So the idea of, of coaching inside an organization and of an executive being able to say to their team, Hey, um, we recognize that this is important to you. And these are the things that are important to the organization. And how do we find the intersections between those two things? Um, you need some of that feedback. Yeah, I think so. And that's a key element of how it is that we, uh, that we ought to be thinking about our role as coaches, as leaders. Yeah. And what is coaching for success and how do you align the individual interest with the team and group interest? Yeah. And uh, so often when, when coaching occurs, it's just an, an immediate, you know, let's talk about the tasks. Let's talk about what you, what's working for you, what's not. And most of the time it's, you know, what's not working for you and let's get into that. Yeah. Um, well, and in that movie, Ben Stiller's father, who, who is silent for the whole movie, that's the shtick, um, when he loses it on that stage – he finally looks at him and says, you were good in that movie as a kid, but you're messed up now. Straighten this stuff out. Um, and I think that's what we think coaching is, is like there's some magic force that comes in and completely and utterly changes the direction. But real coaching is kind of a, a, a gentle applied pressure over time. And if you think there's not enough force there to change things, I would, I would argue, go look at the Grand Canyon or the wonders of Rocky Mountain National Park, right? I mean, those yeah. are about uh, sustained small forces over time. And, and coaching has its impact when there's a level of consistency. It's not you come in, you say one thing, and somebody changes all of their behaviors. Which is typically what people's expectation is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's very often the expectation that people have of us when they ask us to do a, coaching <laughs> of a, a CEO or you know an executive. Yeah. I th I think I think the subtlety of that is often overlooked, and so if you're going to have that kind of effect over time, it has to be very uh, very intentional, and so that comes back then to be being able to have conversations about what is the intention for the relationship. We talk about this often, and I'm glad we do because it's that important is to be able to to talk about and and establish an intention between if you're the coach between you and that person that you're coaching and and if you're receiving the coaching to be able to know that you can have a set, a trust in the person that you that you're being coached by and working with that their key interest is your success uh, you know we still hear and i think it's kind of a it comes around just in in a typical fashion um that we we still hear that a lot of times people as leaders in organizations depend on the people around them to help them create their success. Now that's a given. Yeah. Now, how do you bring that <laughs> into the, and how do you move past that idea? It's like, Hey, you're here to make me look good is very different than as a, as a leader, I'm, I'm here to help you look good. I'm, I'm here to help you succeed. Edgar, do you think that that is a, uh, you know, with all of your experience and, and, you know, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, one of the pieces of coaching I was doing this past week is that a lot of times somebody's supervisor, there are different relationships in that singular relationship, right? Yes. There's the relationship of, of being supervisor. There's a relationship of, of mentoring and helping me grow. And, and what you mentioned is that, you know, the leader's job is to help everybody grow. Um, 
it's kind of how I believe about being a parent, right? I mean, as you're raising them to kick them out of the nest and be successful. Um, and if they're more successful than you, that's even a bigger bonus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Not many, not many leaders think about the folks that work for them in that way. And so, you know, these multiple relationships, like I need you to tell me the truth of the work I'm doing that helps you. Okay. I need you to help me yes. figure out how to do my work so that I can be, so that I can be better. Right. I mean, there's a multi-directionality in those relationships. There is. So a couple of thoughts come to mind as I'm, as I'm listening to you. And the first one is, is that, um, I think this idea of trust, you know, your relationship to a child has an element of trust in it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to establish those, those different pieces of trust in every coaching relationship. And the simplicity here is really, one is uh, that I listen to you. If yeah. I'm coaching you, I need to be able to listen to you and really understand you. And, um, and the second one then is, is to understand what you, what you perceive to be, what you're good at and what you're not good at. So we can have an open, honest co- you know, dialogue and conversation about that, which then, and, and then the other form of trust is how open and honest are we with one another? And um, I think one of the aspects of coaching um, that's so important is to establish a level of truth, a level of honesty in the dialogue and the conversation. Because without that, as a coach, you, you certainly can't do a great job if you're withholding. Yeah. Uh, you can't do, uh, you've got to be able to step into the difficult conversations when you need to, which is why the subtlety of establishing intention for the relationship up front is so important. And to have a conversation about just that. What does this relationship between the two of us look like? And to begin with that, what do we want this to look like? And let's face it, most <laughs> And I, I would suggest to you, 80, 90% of the time, that conversation doesn't happen. Is this, is this really uh, at the heart of the generational gap, right? I mean, the, the boomers that went to work and created the, you know, the 60-hour work week and had this loyalty to their organizations because they had those kinds of relationships at work. Um, and, and are they now becoming a little bit more transactional? I, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what the general, what the general effect is. I, I just, I just recognize that more and more as we rely more on texting, emailing, and our communication becomes less personal, it, it just naturally it leans towards the transactional. And so, yeah, I think in general, if I were to step back from it and think about it for just a moment, yeah, I think it is. This development of trust, you know, Edgar, I think there's so much, there's so much in there. How, how do you develop that? that trust, um, right? I mean, you do it, you, you mentioned, you know, you do this with your children. Your children get to watch over time for extended length of time, regardless of what happens, you keep coming back to support them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and that's a big, that's a big help in the development of that trust. Yeah, and I th- as I think as children evolve into becoming adults, then we find nooks and crannies in that trust, and we begin to question the relationship to some degree. I, I think we do that as teenagers and adolescents, and I think it becomes even uh, a, a more <laughs> a deeper topic of thought as as we move. I think the same thing happens in the work environment. I think you could have that initial surface kind of approach to things, or you can create depth and trust in a relationship. Yeah. And when there is, when there are, I should say, when there are moments of testing that trust, that there's an ability in the relationship to, to have an open dialogue and open conversation about it. Do leaders and organizations often misplace, you know, um, I'm always fascinated by the org behavior kind of conversations in the research that comes out of this, right? Because it is just, it, it, it lacks such truth, right? I mean, one of the things we know about uh, the study of org behavior is um, this contradiction between most people don't leave their jobs because of money, but when they leave, they report it's because of money, right? And we know that's a gap. <laughs> um, and so, you know, oftentimes the feedback to leaders are, are about things related to communication and transparency. So many organizations are changing. And, and you know, I get to see, I get to experience and see so many leaders, they think that 
communication and transparency is the thing that they have to put out there, transparency is really an elusive one for so many because as organizations are changing, I've been in the room when so many leaders are like, but we can't let people know this. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. So they go to the communication side and then they, they do, they kill you with volume. Right. Mm-hmm. Most, most leaders hear feedback as the idea of, of tell me more stuff. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, we, yeah, I experienced that as well. I, I think when I, you just said so on something that I think is real important and that's a, the whole idea of, you know, what is transparency and uh, let's face it, uh, it's really about being truthful. It's about being open and honest. Right. So that's, that's what it is. And, uh, I, I always in, when when someone says to me, um, "Yeah, we're going to change this, so we're going to do this, but we can't let them know yet, or right, <laughs> we're not going to let." So yes. often, yes, right. So often. So uh, there's two questions that always come to my mind. Number one is, "What are you concerned over? What's the fear? What are you concerned over by sharing information? What's your concern?" And certainly, there's uh, at times there's really good reasons, and and um, they're worth talking about and exploring, because sooner or later that question's going to evolve into, when are you going to let them know? Yeah. When are you going to share the information? So it's not just well, what's keeping you? What's your concern? The reality is sooner or later, people need to know. Just like in any relationship, sooner or later, people need to know. And so the second question I always like to ask is, okay, if not now, when? Yeah. And let's have a real conversation about that. Well, and, and I think, Edgar, if you get to the, the human part of why people want to know things, especially when an organization is changing, you know, I would bet that there's conditions such as, do I still fit here or will I have to be different? Yes. Um, you know, that kind of, am I valued? Am I valued in this new version of, of what we are? Um, if I'm not doing what I'm doing right now and I have to do something different, am I capable? Will I have the help in developing those skill sets? Um, yes. And, and can I trust that I'm going to get what I need to be successful? Yeah. I, I would argue, you know, the, the American government is trying to do all of this, uh, reskilling, upskilling, depending on who you talk to is different words, um, work. Uh, as people transition to a more uh, technology-based economy. But these are the things I think they're not talking about, is, you know, self-doubt creeps in, um, sense of belonging gets questioned, the organization is new. How, how do I fit? I mean, I think it becomes very, very personal, and we don't often talk about that. And that level of transparency, I, I've seen so many leaders hide behind the legalese of all of this or they haven't quite made a decision and they don't want to tell anybody until the decisions are already made, which, you know, that's, that's a, the circularity of, I haven't talked to enough people to find out how to make the right decision. And I don't want to tell people or talk to people until I make the decision. <laughs> yes. Cause I'm, I'm supposed to, I'm the leader and I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. Yeah. As opposed to reaching out and asking for help. I think there's a lot of, in what, this conversation begs is for the individual because we we've talked about this here in the podcast around change and everyone immediate the immediacy and change and the complexity here is that everyone will first draw inward to themselves so that's the first that's the first consideration you know so what's in it for me and what does that look like so i think you've you've actually isolated a piece of this in a really good way that says that those conversations at an individual level are necessary to move an organization as a whole. In other words, it's really got to find its way down to each individual so that each individual, uh, their concerns, their questions, uh, what, what matters to them somehow gets responded to. So this is where the listening and a response to it. Yeah. So this is where the title of this week comes in, right? I mean, coaching and engagement. Yeah. And so I, you know, the image that comes flying to my head as you talk about working it down to the individual is, you know, this is not about the proverbial ping pong table and the beer on tap in the lobby. Uh, this is about real conversation. This is about real conversation. No. You don't get engagement by only setting the conditions. You must have those individual conversations. You do. With every person in the organization, regardless of their role, their function, their job, whatever it is that they're doing, 
And it's it's kind of interesting to, just to note that most people don't have a clear sense of the strategy of their organization. First of all, like you just pointed out, it, it becomes a, a waiting game. And so in the absence of knowledge, there's the storytelling that takes place and the assumptions that are made. And so being able to engage everyone and being able to get everyone included means communicating and making sure that they they understand where where everyone's headed and in particular they as an individual what's going to be required of them and what's the definition of success and again we're back to the simple idea that the conversation is the relationship and unless you have those kinds of you know unless you're creating that that level of dialogue it's going to be problematic and this goes back to uh, we we talk about different areas of strategy in organization right uh, customer experience, product service development, operational, financial strategies, et cetera, and culture strategy. And then uh, so often in, until until it's it's discovered that you're lacking it is leadership development. You know, I mean, leadership development is strategic. And you can hear it here in this conversation that unless every person that is in a leadership role in the organization knows how to engage individuals and coach individuals, at whatever level they're at, whatever they're doing, that's going to be problematic. And so the ability to see this um, as, a, as a force, as an influence in your organization in a positive way and paying attention to it, unless you're doing that, you, you're going to see a lot of the problems that people in organizations encounter, especially at frontline leadership and frontline leadership roles. Uh, one of the many reasons, Edgar, that I love uh, working together with you is is – this construct that business at the end of the day is human. Um, you know, that just is a, a kind of centering piece for, for everything that I do here in this, in this business college. Um, and, and I get to bring it out much more in the work that I do with you and organizations that we work with. So I appreciate that. Tell me, you know, the thing that makes me wonder is um, you mentioned hierarchy of an organization uh, before, you know, so many organizations expect that work to trickle down through the organization, right? I mean, we can make an argument over whether um, trickle-down economics ever works. It doesn't. Um, and in an organization, when the leaders expect the next layer down and the next layer down and the next layer down of leadership to be having those one-on-one -on -one conversations, but those relationships never trickle back up and never bubble back up, I mean, can we really, this, the culture work is a struggle for so many organizations, especially through change, um, but just even if they're not changing, because how do you grow an organization in terms of the number of people, the number of size, the number of reach of an organization, and still pay such tight attention to the culture? Who are we talking to? We're talking to an organization and, and the employees were really, were really jiving with the, the alignment work we were doing. But the, lead, the manager of their section only cared about the output. And? Well, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to think, so how do we, if we are relying on trickle-down management strategies to have these conversations with individuals and relationships, yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think the trickle-down are you just letting it happen, or do you intentionalize it? Is what I hear as being the difference. It's innate on us to create hierarchy. We do it in organizational context because there's levels of competency and capability that are required through an organization and some structure around that, some predictability who to go to for what, and how do we use our expertise, our capability, knowledge, competencies, skills. So I think that's a, a natural consequence. Part of that then is is being able to define uh, what success looks like for those people that are moving in the hierarchy into leadership roles. And it's not so much of a let's, let's see if this works and, and whether it happens. It, it's much more intentional. So to intentionalize coaching through an organization, I think, is important to either create a, you know, some actually call it a, you know, we want to have a coaching culture. Well, what exactly does that mean? Yep. So you teach process and skills towards, towards making that really work. 
And it's, I, I find it really interesting that an aspect of this idea of cascading or trickle down, once you intentionalize it, a part of that is also the other, the other side of the coin. So to give you a perspective on the other side of the coin is the feedback coming back up through the hierarchy in the system. So if everyone that's coaching just follows some basic steps in their conversations with people, number one, set an intention for the relationship. Let's have a conversation about what you and I working together looks like and our, and this relationship and, and the uh, intention towards creating individual and shared success in it. And then in every conversation, uh, here's, here's, here's the process. The first question is, what, did you, what are you accomplishing? What are you succeeding at? And then the second question is, how are you getting there? You know, what's working for you? Yeah. And let's, let's ground ourselves in strengths and building on those strengths. Then the third question is, so what aren't you getting accomplished? What aren't you succeeding at? And then let's have a conversation about what isn't working for you, what's missing. Um, and that's a, relatively speaking, that's a problem-solving design question. Yeah. So what's missing? And so you move into problem-solving. And, and outcome process. Yeah. Um, outcome process, what do you need? Yep, and then what do you need? And so from there, then you derive what, what actions are you taking? What's, what is success going to look like? And let's keep defining that. Let's get some clarity on how you're going to get there. And, and then it comes that, that key question that so often is left off the end. So it seems to me like the front end intention isn't set well enough. And here it comes on the back end, which kind of loops right around to that is, what do you need from me? What, how can I help you? What do you need from me? What feedback do you have for me? What's going to be more helpful in this conversation, in our relationship, in, in your work? What can I do to, to be better myself? And is a way of, uh, that's what you're actually asking when you say, what do you need from me is, how can I be better? And then if you see that sequence occurring throughout an organization, then you're creating those feedback loops all the way back up too. Because the what do you need from me is you're seeking feedback. So yeah. the giving and getting is it is is the interplay is there. Yeah, there's some circularity in that in that level of conversation, right? Starts with you, comes back to me, um, yeah. so that it goes back to you. Exactly. Yeah, it's the give and get. Yeah, um, I've heard leaders call this uh, ladder down leadership. Um, you know, I everybody's in search of a in search of a phrase t- to give this in, in the work we do you know, at the end of the alignment framework is this direct conversation about leadership. Yeah. Um, you know, all the way through from the customer experience and the, in the meeting of the brand intention to the employee experience that the leader is supporting all of that. Um, we're very intentional of why that's at that end of the alignment model. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I hear, what I hear in that language is that regardless of if you're our, a participatory leader, uh, an expert leader, or a servant leader, um, this this is necessary for you to have this intention set in the relationship of those you are leading. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it is. Uh, so often the and we we touched on this before. So often the question that we're getting is, how do we increase engagement? We've got a more remote workforce. Things are getting spread out differently. And uh, we're trying to figure out how to create engagement. What, what does that look like? What does engaging culture look like? Well, you're right. It, can, it has all the basic ingredients of any culture. Power, influence, decision-making, problem-solving, et cetera. And one constant is what does performance management look like and what does coaching look like? And so you want to increase engagement through your organization, pay attention to the individual, and uh, undertake the... Undertake the um, um, the goal of making sure that every person in the organization is being coached in some way. Is this uh, is this part of the expert blind spot for for many leaders? It is. Uh, yeah, very often the expertise gets in the way of acknowledging what somebody else may need because we take it for granted. We forget uh, what what someone who doesn't have our level of expertise and experience what they actually need to be successful, and we don't spend enough time inquiring and asking about that. Um, very often coaching is, let me tell you from my expert view the way you ought to be doing it instead of asking what's working for you and what's not and what do you think you need. Yeah. 
I gotta slow down to speed it up and you have to stop and ask before you tell. Yeah, go slow to go fast. Um, so many, so many phrases come, come screaming to mind here. Yeah. I just wonder if the frenetic pace of most businesses, the leaders just forget this simplicity of, of human relationships. Um, well, we get very driven towards our goals and we get very driven towards the task and getting things done that we don't take the necessary time and we don't think enough about about taking that and making that effort to create those kinds of those kinds of conversations. We can get pretty wrapped up pretty quickly. You know, the one irony that I'm that comes to my mind is that um, for many organizations that have boards that board is the asking the president what they need and what they want, president or CEO. Um, kind of a lot of people asking that leader what they want or need. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, we see. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of unbalanced because the employees don't get so many people asking them. Yeah, and you can hear it too now, the, the, the advisory board, right? that idea of um, surrounding yourself with advisors. What I think what I'm hearing more and more now is is um, that a board is intended to be a developmental board. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a people on the on the board or coaching people in the organization, and there's a degree degree of uh, emphasis and focus on development as opposed to advising. Now they could be one and the same, no doubt. But I certainly think that, and my hope here is that board members are opening up and looking at themselves as not just advisors and, and providing governance. Um, it's also about providing coaching and wisdom. Yeah. And I think those are the good boards. Yeah. It's interesting because so many, so many boards that I've interacted with and seen, you know, they give you their opinion of what should be done, um, but they, they fail to ask those other questions that you mentioned in a positive coaching relationship. Again, that's the expert lens. Because we come into the situation with an expectation that we're gonna we're going to utilize our expertise, and uh, that's great. But I think first you have to go through an assessment process, yeah, on how to apply it. We've talked earlier about uh, <coughs> kind of apprenticeship um, construct, mm-hmm. and and you know that's always comes comes to my mind because I think many leaders. It's easier to do that version sometimes, right? It's like, watch me work, repeat what I do. Um, and you miss the context of the individual. Right? And, and you get some roboticism of this. Yeah. Yeah. Relationships are hard, too. So TV reference. I'm going to give you a TV reference, so we're a two for today. <laughs> Amy and I just finished watching the series Better Things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for us in our family that has, uh, two daughters and, uh, many of our other family members have, uh, multiple daughters. That's a single mom who's an actress and, uh, her, her father has passed away, but her mom lives across the street and she's on the border of some dementia. And, and, and there's a, there's a struggle in that relationship. And then the three daughters are, um, pain in the ass, frankly, um, with the way that they're growing and changing and have these expectations of the mom. It is actually a, a, a beautiful, drawn-out story of human relationships um, and how complex they are and how complex they are. And we watched the end of the series last night, which was super well done, but um, they didn't wrap it all in a bow. Mm-hmm. But they, they, as the going out, just like we use music as the, out, as the outro, um, they did the same thing. They all sang as the entire cast over the six seasons or five seasons. They sang a song together. Um, but, but the complexity of human relationships requires time. It does. And just also realize you're never really going to put a bow on it. No. The reason we put bows on things is so people can pull on them again. Yeah, they're yeah. never done. Yeah. Um, you know, they must come back. I, I'm doing performance evaluations for my direct reports right now, Edgar, and it's exhausting. It's, it's exhausting. Um, what makes it exhausting? 
it's it's exhausting. I mean, that's the um, I just told you, and and Jim bleeped it out there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry for our technical difficulties I, this morning. Uh, it's actually <laughs> a little bit of a loaded question. Yeah, I think what makes feedback or, or uh, giving doing that, doing those assessments, is because we're constantly tested in terms of how much do we really know and how truthful can I be? Yeah. That's the, I believe that's the tension that really makes it exhausting. It's not just I have to spend all this time doing it. It's the what's the concern or the deep concern and fear that I'm living with as I'm doing it. Yeah. yeah. You know, Nikki Giovanni, she's a poet at Virginia Tech. Um, yeah. We've talked about her before, yeah. right? I mean, she's a kind of out of the civil rights era. A lot of modern rap artists borrow from her from her work, but when they reopened Virginia Tech after that college shooting, um, she wrote a poem, and, you know, the poem had a, 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 re, a repeat verse, was, you know, we are Virginia Tech. We're good, but not as good as we can be. Yeah. And, you know, for me as a leader, especially with my direct reports right now, we are going to be a different organization very soon. And so part of that difficulty with giving feedback is to spend enough time honoring what has gotten us here and then enough tangible feedback to encourage people to move and yet give them a choice not to. Yeah, explore the future and what their role in it is. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to force anybody into this different kind of organization we're going to become. I want them to have choice. Um, I don't want to make the choice for them. And, 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 you know, I don't, it's a little bit of an out of body experience for me because you write the words and then you got to hover above them to see if you're honoring the individual and doing what the organization needs with that feedback. I'm not sure they've gotten feedback like this before. You can always ask. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen some of the previous feedback they've had. And it's celebratory feedback. You know, I think that's the other thing that we don't say to leaders often enough. I mean, and here's, uh, I think I've shared this before on the podcast, and, and Jim, maybe you'll remember. You know, I've told my previous, I've told my last few bosses that I need, I need three things. I need a little bit of a peek under the hood so that if you're planning for change, don't blindside me. Um, because... The thing I detest more and more and more <laughs> is being made to look stupid on somebody else's behalf. Um, so that's the first thing I need. The, the second thing I need is not public praise, but my boss's praise. Tell me that I'm doing good things so that I know to continue to do them. And the third thing is tell me when I'm being a schmuck. I, and, and honestly, that last part, I, I, so many bosses don't take that serious. But I, I got to tell you, I worked with a guy for a long time, and he is, he is a lifelong and dear friend. I worked with him at doing the sausage at the state fair for years. I got to talk to him yesterday. I miss him so much. Um, but I got to tell you that I did some stupid stuff, and he <laughs> called me out. I mean, in a, in a, in a way where I went, huh. I should have thought about that more and I should have done it differently. Do I like, do I like that kind of feedback in the moment? No, but it's not there for me to like necessarily. It's there for me to ponder. Um, and I, you know, I want that so much from, from a boss. I mean, praise me for the things I'm doing well. Tell me when I'm a schmuck, please. Um, because I can be helpful. Yeah, it's important to have the, those kind of conversations of here's what's working for you and here's what's not. Yeah. 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 I, I will say that what we did in that relationship, though, was very firmly set the intention of for that relationship. So I knew. So I knew where that was coming from. Yep. And so we're right back to square one again. Is always set. The, we always do. What's what do you? What's the intention for the relationship? Let's start with that. Um, let's have candid conversations about what trust 
you know, how it shows up, what it means. Let's talk about how we create and help each other to succeed, um, creating success and what does that look like individually, collectively, be able to have those open conversations about here's what's working for you and here's how you're using what you have to create success. And let's also have a conversation about what it is that you need to do differently or and, and uh, you know, where the challenges are. And then last and not least, always coming back to the intention, which is how do we, how do we help someone succeed? And how can we do that? And that's it. It's really quite simple, isn't it? Yet. Elegantly so. It's uh, difficult to enact. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, a, a same conversation with someone recently about, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the day, conflict and leaders. And we've had this conversation here over and over. And at the end of the day, uh, great leadership is about pursuing the truth and bringing it into the spoken realm. There it is. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks for the conversation today. We have some guests coming up, future podcasts. Um, so, uh, you know, we've been on this run of getting more guests so that the, the audience doesn't need to listen to just you and me every week. Um, but we have Adam Ray, the CEO of uh, Astrum U, uh, an ed tech startup out of uh, Washington, uh, out of Seattle, Washington, uh, on next week. And then the week after, we have um, former McDonald's Corporation Executive and Interim President of Regis University, Cody Teets. Mm-hmm. And a couple weeks after that, we have author Jack Russell. Yeah. Fox World. Fox World. Yeah, and that'll be fun as well. Yeah, I think so. So... Stay tuned. Stay tuned. And as always, questions, thoughts, comments, anything at all, uh, info at truealignment.com. As we hear from you, you'll hear from us. And uh, thanks very much for joining us uh, for uh, True Alignment. See you next time around. I'm Ken Sagendorf. I'm Edgar Papke. Thanks, everybody.